Okay, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start, and then we're going to head to Matthew chapter 1. So you can uh, put a, uh, a thumb in all that, and that's where we are going to be today. Genesis, start in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to cover a lot of the Bible today, so you're going to have to kind of hang with me and be ready to flip around quite a bit. If, um, if I were to go home tonight and say, Laura, baby, what movie do you want to watch? Here's probably the response I would get. Why don't we try like, you know, maybe like a 16 candles. And after I have forgiven her for that flawed moral behavior, right? Um, we, we would pick, a, she'd pick maybe a little bit better movie. So it would maybe kind of rise up now to where um, she might go with uh, the walk to remember, you know. She might go with the 27 dresses to kind of catch us up into modern day chick flicks. She might go with uh, Holiday, I think's the new. Okay, th- this is her type of movies. Now, whenever she brings a group of girls over and I hear the pronouncement, we're watching one of these, right? Like one of those movies. Um, that's a clear call for me to do something. And that do something is walk away. That's what I do. When I hear that pronounced, I am, I am walking away. So I know that if I make an appearance, it better be short and brief, you know? And so now here's one of my favorite things to do when you've got a room full of girls and a chick flick is on. <laughs> Come in at the major, at the last climatic point in the movie, Right? And what, what do you find when you come in at the climactic point in the movie? You've got a bunch of girls watching a, a chick flick. Bawling, right? Like, I, I walk in, the climactic point is there, and I just look at Laura's face, and here's what her face is screaming. Like, cheeks, eyebrows, mouth, everything is screaming, I have got to cry. Everything's screaming that, right? It, it's this funny thing. You get the cli- and I'm looking at that climactic point going, listen, what is the problem? I see nothing here. Make, okay, like when I think of movies, number one, I don't want to cry. Girls want to cry with me. I don't understand that. I like high body counts. Okay, that's my idea of good movie, right? Okay, now, um, five years ago, I was a great husband five years ago. Now, guys, I recommend being great husbands. I'm not sure I recommend doing it this way, though, all right? Five years ago, February, it's Valentine's. The notebook had just come out. I take Laura to watch the notebook in the movie theater. Like I said, I'm not saying I recommend that behavior, okay? That's barely, okay. So I take her to watch the movie. Um, We get in, and and evidently a lot of guys had this same idea, maybe a good Valentine's. There was not a seat to be found. We sat on the floor in the movie theater watching the notebook, right? So this is like, this is sold out. We're scrounging around to get a seat. We're on the floor watching the notebook. And the story starts to unfold. You know, it's building. It gets to the climactic point, and something crazy happens. You know, like when you get that lump in your throat? You know, you know that lump? That lump lodged in my... I couldn't get it out. To save my life, that lump would not... Okay, you know that face that we're talking about? Cheeks, mouth, everything is screaming. I have got to start crying right now. I could, I could see myself, like, uh, you know, how you can kind of see, like, imagine what you would look like. I could imagine my face screaming, I have got to start crying right now. So I did what any good man would do, right? You make sure nobody hears you sobbing. You stay behind your wife. No eye contact. Okay, all that was in place. Now, here's what I learned that day, though. Whenever you get the climatic point, if all you see is that, like, if I would have walked in and seen the notebook, an 80-year-old couple hugging each other, and I, me crying, I would have slapped myself right there, right? 
Okay, but whenever you see this whole buildup, this plot develop, this background story, right? These characters develop. It gives all this meaning and significance to this climactic point in the movie. Okay, now let me push pause on that. When I think of Christmas and the way most of us think about it, I think most of us see this climactic point in history with no background to it, no depth and no dimension to it. Like we know, like we know the laundry list of facts surrounding this climactic moment, but we've, we've, we've missed all of this buildup, all of this tension leading to it, all of this set, all of this background, all of these things that develop to give us great meaning and significance. When you get all the background to the story, it makes the climactic event in history, the birth of Jesus, explode with meaning. So here's my goal for this morning. I want to try to walk us through that and create a little bit of that depth and dimension. And then we're going to get to Matthew chapter 1 and look at a couple of verses. I'm going to ask a couple of questions over it, and and we'll be done. So here we go. We're starting in in Genesis chapter 1. The opening words of the Bible are really, really important. Opening couple of words start like this. In the beginning. This is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. Okay, so before you have anything else, here's what the Bible's saying. You have God. So before you have any of us, before we existed, before anything was, you had a good creator. You had God that was there. Okay, now here's what that's also going to imply. That the universe is not random. It's not by chance. There is a God who governs the affairs of man. Like There is a God who holds the king's heart in his hands in the course of history, right? Governing all that for his purposes on the planet. A Romans 11 is going to say it this way, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So we have got a God who is sovereignly in control. In the beginning, God, then it goes on to this next uh, couple of, of words here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so from the beginning, the, the Bible wants you to know that we have got a God, not only who was before all things, but who created all things. So your God, the God of the scriptures, it is that God who made everything that we see. So when we walk out of here today and we see a beautiful sunset, that is the handiwork of God, right? When you look up as you leave this building today and you see this beautiful blue background, that is the handiwork of God. When you see the majesty of mountains, when all of that, the Bible is going to say that is God at work. Okay, how about this one's dad? When you walk into that room tonight and you're putting down your kids and you kiss your little girl on the forehead, that is the handiwork of God, right? We have got a creative creator. So you've got in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, now skip down to the end of Genesis chapter 13. End of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It's going to be on the screen for you. I'm trying to help you out on the screen. So if, if you have a problem flipping there, then um, just look up. But at the end of Genesis chapter 1, God has created the heavens and the earth. And this is the pronouncement we get of God's creation. Here's what it says about it in Genesis 1:31. And God said everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. So he looks at all of these things that he made, and he's saying, listen, everything that I've made, here's what I'm saying about it, it is good. So here's what he's implying there, that there are some things that the world is free of. At this moment, Genesis chapter 1, the world is free from a lot of things. You don't have things like cancer. You don't have things like pain. You don't have things like ankle problems and back problems. You don't have AIDS. You don't have the flu. You don't have UT fans, for one, right? Okay, don't hate me, seriously. That was a joke. That was a joke. Okay, so you don't have a lot of things. 
Okay, now on the other side of that, he's saying that not only do you not have a lot of things, but you do have a lot of things. God is saying, listen, I am lavishing you in the garden, Adam and Eve. I'm, okay, listen to this. I am giving you everything you need to satisfy your heart. I am withholding nothing that you need. God is not a God who withholds. He's saying, listen, I am lavishing you with everything your heart would need. He looks at Adam and Eve and he says, okay, this is, this is my command to you in Genesis 2.15. The command goes like this. I want you to worship and obey. Work and tend the garden. Worship and obey is what that means. That's what I want you to do. This is your job. This is your role. You worship and obey. You extend my glory on the planet as you worship me, as you obey me. I'm giving you everything you need. I am the way to fulfillment. I am the way to your greatest joy. I am the way to your greatest satisfaction. Worship and obey me, and that is the pathway to it. That is how you get it. Worship and obey me. And here's the crazy thing. Genesis chapter 2. They're doing it. I mean, they step into God's commands and they say, okay, I am ready to go. I am worshiping and obeying. And that lasts all of two chapters in the Bible, right? Out of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible, two of them are good. Okay, Genesis chapter 3 starts with this ominous warning. Like, look at the first couple of words there. Now the serpent. That's a bad start. You know when you have snakes in the picture, bad things are about to happen. And so he comes and creates this doubt in the heart of Adam and Eve. And here's what goes down in Genesis chapter 3. They look at God and what he has commanded from them. And they shake their fist at God in defiance. And say, I know you have said this, but I think this is the way to joy. I think this is the way to life. I think you're withholding. And so they turn from God and they turn to Satan. Isn't that tragic? The most catastrophic event on the planet happened. Genesis chapter 3. They walk away from God and eat the fruit. Okay, now at that moment, here's what happened. You have got, in Genesis 2, a world that is in rhythm with God. Okay, there are no white people dancing in Genesis chapter 2. You have got a world that's in rhythm. Worship and obey. They are in, in rhythm with God. And here comes Genesis chapter 3. They sin. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And now this world that is in rhythm with God is now fractured. The rhythm is broken. And you see this instantly play out in the scriptures. Okay, you just start reading through and you see this fracture in the universe instantly play out. Okay, okay you've got the fracture that would happen like in nature. Now for the first time you have things like um, storms and hurricanes and tsunamis wreaking havoc on the planet. But you also see this fracture play out in human relationships. So, so this fracture, it, it affects the way we deal with one another. Okay, look at Genesis chapter 4. This is going to be uh, verse 8. This out of rhythm, downward spiral, the world is out of control here. The world is full of sin. Okay, it, it reaches Adam and Eve's, their, their kids. In Genesis 4, verse 8, it says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. There's something kind of reassuring when I look at that, like there's dysfunction all throughout the Bible. Probably in your family too. You know, there's something a little bit reassuring. But isn't that tragic? Four chapters in, Cain kills his brother Abel. Okay, now flip to Genesis chapter 6. 
We're four chapters in, rebellion has surfaced. Jealousy, envy, bitterness, insecurity, anger, rage, war, all these things, murder has surfaced. Okay, then you get to Genesis chapter 6, and here's what God is saying about the world. Okay, in Genesis 1, he says, listen, it is good. The world I've got, it's good. This is what he says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And listen to this, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. And look at verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Okay, so we have moved from Genesis 1, it is good, to Genesis 6. I'm looking at the world and I'm seeing men and women, the thoughts, the inclinations of their heart only on evil all of the time. Okay, now make sure you hear what I'm about to say. And I think God makes a profound statement here. And here's what he's saying, that he can see behind what we present to people. Like we have a God that can see our hearts, our motives, our inclinations. Like we have a God who knows that tape, that that thing always running, the God who sees all of that. He's saying, listen, hypocrisy does not fool me. He's looking at their heart and he sees evil all the time. It's so bad that here's his salute. I'm going to eradicate mankind. I'm going to send a flood and completely start over. In Genesis 6, 9, it says he's going to start with Noah. Like Noah is a blameless man, righteous man. Okay, so I'm going to start with him. We're going to get this thing rolling again. So, okay, the flood happens. Noah and his family come out. And the question becomes, how long would Noah and his family, he's a righteous man, how long would it last now? About three minutes. Okay, go to Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. The the rebellion instantly resurfaces here. Chapter 11, here's what the people say in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Then they said, these are the people who have congregated to make this tower in Babel. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And then listen to this last phrase. So that we may make a name for ourselves. So that we can make a name for ourselves. Okay, now here is the irony in this. God has never called his people to make a name for themselves. He's never, he's never called you to make a great name for you. He has called all of us, Isaiah 43, 7. He has called all of us to make a great name for him. He's called all of us to live, to extend his glory, to build his renown. And so the people who should be living for his glory have turned all of that around and they are living for their selfish ambition, for their own name. Okay, so when you just start reading through the pages of Scripture, here's what you see. On all the pages of Scripture, you see the fall, the curse. You see that on all the pages. You see this fractured world. This this world that went from it is good to now their thoughts are only on evil all of the time. You see it all. Okay, Jerry Springer gets his episodes. Like his ideas for episodes come, I'm convinced, through the Bible. Okay, you just start reading forward, and here's what you're going to see about Abraham. This guy tries to let his wife sleep with another man for his own sake. Like to make sure he doesn't die, get killed in the deal. That is Jerry Springer, all right? Okay, you keep moving on. Moses kills a man. Keep moving on. David, a guy that God's going to say, man, this is a guy after my own heart, right? He sleeps with another man's wife and has that man killed. 
I mean, you just start reading the pages of Scripture, and it is a laundry list of crazy things. You see the fracture surface all throughout the pages. And listen, just to make sure we're all clear here, it's not just in the Bible, right? We see this all over the face of the planet today. Pick up any newspaper you want, watch any news station you want, and you're going to see the fracture in the universe still there. Okay, now flip back. Genesis chapter 3. If you were reading the Bible for the first time, here's one of the problems if you've read the Bible a lot, is that sometimes being familiar with the Bible makes it where you have a hard time seeing some things. But if you're reading the Bible with good eyes for the first time, as you read the opening pages, here's what would happen in you. You would read chapter 1 and think, okay, God has created, it's good. You read chapter 2, he's given them the command, they're they're living in it, they're worshiping and obeying. And then here comes chapter 3, and they totally disobey. They shake their fists in rebellion and walk the other way. And here is the instant tension that is created three chapters into the Bible. How will God respond to these people? How is God going to respond to them? Shaking their fist in disobedience. How is he going to handle this? The answer is in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. God, um, they sin, God pursues. That is the MO of God. He is a pursuing God. He pursues, and this is what you get in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God, he's talking to the serpent. He's about to curse the serpent. He says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is to Satan he's talking about here. Here comes this pivotal promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then listen to this phrase. He, that's masculine and singular. He, one man, shall bruise, or your translation might say crush. That one man shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's what he's saying. Genesis chapter 3, here's the tension. I've created, all of it's good. You have rebelled. Here's the the tension, how it unfolds. I'm going to send one man that is going to crush your head. I'm going to send one. There is one coming who will destroy the works of the devil, restoring what has been broken. This is how the plot starts. This is the background and the buildup to Matthew. I am sending one who will completely destroy you. Satan, I'm, I'm sending one who will restore all that's been fractured, restore the rhythm back. I'm sending one who will do that. Okay, so now, um, basically, the, the rest of the Bible unpacks that. How, who is it? Where is he? When will it happen? This is the rest of the Bible unfolding now. And so in the Old Testament, you've got all this anticipation. Will this be the one? Is this going to be the guy? You've got all this anticipation that builds. Okay, so, so let's start in Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, okay, this is Genesis chapter 12. I, I want to show you how this, this develops the Old Testament. Who is this one going to be? Where is he? When will he come? Genesis chapter 12 gives us one of these clues, and I can't hit all of these high places. I just want to give you a couple in, in the Old Testament. 
Um, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's what he's saying. That promise in Genesis chapter 3 is connected to you, Abraham. It is going to flow through you and your descendants. So now out of all the people living, here's what we know. That promise, the one who will crush the head of Satan, destroying the works of Satan, that one is going to flow through the line of Abraham. Okay, you keep coming down in Genesis chapter 17. This will be on the screen for you. Um, God promises Abraham and Sarah a son. And God reaffirms to them in Genesis chapter 17 that it's going to be Isaac. That's the one the promise is going to flow through. So here's what we know. Out of all the people living, it's now not just Abraham, but it's the people in Isaac's line. That's where the promise is going to come. Genesis 3 has got to be a fulfillment of that. You keep coming, uh, coming down in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. God, God reaffirms in a dream to Jacob. You are the one. Jacob, it's going to be you. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one that the promise is going to flow through. Genesis 3, 15 is going to flow through the line of Jacob. Okay, now you get all the way to the end of Genesis in Genesis 49, verse 10. Here's what you see. Um, Jacob has these 12 sons, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Joseph, and I I love this idea again. You just see the dysfunction all throughout the scriptures. Just a little bit reassuring. I had two older brothers. And uh, if you're one of three brothers, you probably have a thought or two at some point, I want to kill them, you know? I was never crazy enough to do that, right? Jacob's sons were, all right? So so they throw Joseph into a well. Um, One of them has compassion. Okay, we sure, we can't kill him. So let's sell him into slavery. That's our solution, right? Okay, so they sell him into slavery. He winds up in Egypt, rises to power, saves their family. You just see a beautiful picture of God's providence there. Saves their family, brings them to Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, um, verse 49, or chapter 49, verse 10, here's what we learn. Out of these 12 sons of Jacob, the scepter, the king, the promised one is going to flow. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter is going to be in the hands of Judah. So now we know that the promised one, Genesis Genesis 3, that is going to flow through Judah, his descendants. Um, I proposed to Laura on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, right? I'm pretty proud of this story. I'm pretty proud of it. And so I just had really one qualification. I mean, this was it. I mean, I, I wouldn't consider this over the top, but Laura, if you say no, I'm leaving you here, right? And so uh, she said yes, thankfully. And so on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, I propose, she says yes. And nine, ten months later, I stand before her. She walks down the aisle. And isn't there so much hope filled in, a, in an early marriage, right? I, I mean, you can probably remember that day where that bride walked down. And you have all these aspirations, dreams about life, how it's going to unfold. And, and part of those, I think, for most couples would be, we're going to have kids someday. That's going to be a part of the hopes here. And so, um, okay, so, and for Laura, I mean, that's definitely a part of what we're hoping for, right? I mean, that's pretty normal. And so we enter into this long battle with infertility. And I'm telling you, if you have been there, it is brutal. It is a monthly roller coaster of all this anticipation, all this excitement. And at the end of the month, the letdown, the heartbreak. I mean, over and over, I mean, just this cycle. You're up at the top of the hill, surely this is it, let down. You're up at the top of the hill, let down. 
over and for, for years this went on. And like I look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament and I think that is their story. If you would have been alive when David rose to power, he has defeated the Philistines, he has just slayed the giant. He has defeated all of their enemies. If you were alive when David was king and you were in Israel, here's what you would have said. This could be it. This could be the promised one. This could be the one we have been waiting for. He sins. Here comes the disappointment. If you were alive when Solomon was king, he's built the temple. You've got a period of peace. Israel is in a a prosperous time you would have thought maybe this is the one. But the guy ran off with 700 wives. Is that not Jerry Springer? I mean, that's Jerry Springer. The kingdom breaks up into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern's Israel, the southern's Judah. Josiah is one of the the southern kings. He stumbles into the temple, stumbles onto the word of God, reads it, and revival breaks out. If you would have been alive when Josiah was king, you would have thought, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is it. He dies early. Disappointment again. I mean, they know the story. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt that your timetable and God's timetable were just different? I mean, have you ever been in that mode where you have just been pleading with God, God, I need you to show up here. God, we need this to happen. And not like in three days from now or three years. We need this to happen now. God, in our family, we have got to see this happen soon. God, these ingrained habits, we have got to see victory, not in a week, but now. God, in in my dad, we have got to see you work, not later, but now. And my mom and my son and my daughter, not later, but God, we have got to see you work now. I mean, have you ever been in that moment where all of these hopes, all of these expectations just seem to be put off? I think the people of Israel would know that story. By the end of the New Testament, they are, by the end of the Old Testament, I, I think there is a growing, growing roar in the middle of them saying, God, where are you? God, where, you have made this promise and it seems empty. I mean, it is like a politician here. I mean, this seems empty. I, I think their heart would be, God, have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten us? Where are you? Have you forgotten us? Now I want you to picture something. Like I wish this could just be completely black in here. And and maybe even to help, why don't you close your eyes? Can you feel just the darkness of, of just a blackness around you? For 450 years, as you close the Old Testament, God's voice was silent. God didn't speak. 450 years, the people of Israel in great despair, the people of Israel losing hope. God, where are you? Have you forgotten us? And can I just encourage you with something this morning?
that even in the midst of complete darkness and what seems like silence, that God is always at work in the background. God is always at work in the background. God hasn't spoken in years. And in the background, here's what God is doing. Alexander the Great is born and he has conquered most of the known world. By, by his death in 323 AD, the world fills Greek. So, so if you were to go speak, a la- people are speaking, the world fills Greek. The, the Greek power erodes, and here comes this next dynasty. And by the year 63 BC, the Roman army ha- is the dominant power on the planet. And here's what has come with the Roman army. With the Roman army comes a, an intricate set of roadways and, and safety as you travel the roadways. Okay, so listen to this. Watch this in the background. In the middle of what would be perceived as complete silence, God has created a world that speaks and fills Greek. So the Greek New Testament could be read by almost all the the New World. But not only is the world Greek, so it can read the Greek New Testament that the gospel is going to be written into, but you've also got this Roman army that has paved roads and created safety so these disciples could travel to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Is that not beautiful? In the darkness, God has worked. The God who controls the king's hearts and the destiny of man created all of that in perfect alignment. So when we get to Genesis or in Matthew chapter 1, the stage is set for the gospel to expand. Okay, so, so roll with me to Matthew chapter 1. Four hundred and fifty years of silence, God breaks through in Matthew chapter one with these words. The book of the this is Matthew one chapter one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is the first thing that that Matthew, the New Testament writer, wants you to see. He's writing to a Jewish audience. He wants you to see this. This guy, this Jesus, he is connected to Abraham, to David. He is connected all the way back to Genesis chapter three. This is the one we have been waiting for. The climatic event in history has all of this meaning because there is so much buildup, so much anticipation, so much tension around it. This Jesus is the one. And here's what the genealogy really is going to show us. That this one, this Jesus, he is human. I mean, he is going to be wrapped in human flesh. But that's not all it wants us to see. Skip down to verse 18. Verse 18 says this. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, and here's what betrothal was, it would be like engagement on steroids. Okay, when you were betrothed, it would take a divorce to to get out of that. So it would be a modern day engagement, then some. So when his mother um, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child, and then it says this, from the Holy Spirit. Now guys, let me just ask you a question. Would you have believed her? Let me answer that question for you. No. This doesn't happen. Typically, getting pregnant is linked to something else, right? I mean, typically that follows a different set. So she comes out and and literally pulls the God card on him. And listen, if you're ever going to break up with somebody, don't pull the God. Just tell them you don't like them, right? Okay, she comes out and says, listen, I'm pregnant. The Holy Spirit did it. I don't know how it happened, right? Okay, now keep reading here. 
Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He doesn't buy into it. But listen, I'm not going to make a big thing out of it. I'm a good man. I'm just going to put it away quietly. And then listen to what happens. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's here's what he's saying here. Not only is Jesus a man, but Jesus is also God. So how God solves the tension. Man has rebelled is I'm going to insert myself into the story. I am going to enter the story. That's how the tensions resolve. Okay, now I want to finish by asking the question of why would he do it? Why did Jesus do it? Like, why did God come and walk among us? Why did Jesus come? Okay, verse 21 is going to answer the question. The angel's talking to Joseph, and here's how she finishes this. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Jesus literally means in Hebrew, God saves. That's his name, God saves, and he's going to explain it. For he will save his people from their sins. He will, okay, now circle the word sins, and circle the word save there. He's going to save the people from their sins. Okay, so let's talk about sin for a couple of seconds here. Sin is a universal problem. It is your problem, my problem, the Bible's problem. It is all over the place problem. Romans 3 is going to say, for all have sinned. It's not just you, it's not just them, it's all of us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? I mean, that, that is all of our condition. You don't have to teach a baby to sin. They come by it naturally. They're pretty good at it from a very early age, right? Okay, so he's saying, listen, sin is a universal problem. And here's, the, here's what sin is. The essence of sin is lawlessness. That's how First John 3 describes it. It is literally a shaking our fist at God, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, did, and saying, God, I know that you say this, but God, I think this. It's lawlessness, creating our own way to live. God, you can say whatever you want, but I'm going to live this way. God, you can kind of set it up however you want, but God, I think I know a little better than you do here. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, so not only is it lawlessness, its origin is in the adversary. Its origin is in Satan. The Bible is going to call him the father of lies, right? I mean, this is the origin of it. Genesis 3 starts with, now the serpent. Okay, and maybe the the most devastating phrase with sin is that it deserves death. Our sin, universally in here, individually in here is deserving of death okay now this is going to be really politically incorrect and i know that but i'm okay with it because the bible teaches it right jesus god created hell as a demonstration of his holiness and righteousness and a demonstration of his punishment for sin Hell is a God-created thing. And it displays the holiness of God and the depravity of our sin, right? Okay, that is a God-created thing. Sin deserves death. Okay, now look at me right here. And here's the beautiful part of the Christmas story is that's not where it ends. God came 
to save people from their sins. Our sin is deserving of death, but Jesus came to save us from the penalty of our sin, right? He came to save from the penalty. We are deserving of death. Jesus came, walked as God in the flesh. He walked with the perfect life, the sinless substitute. He allowed himself to be slaughtered on a cross. And listen, this was not at the whim of Pilate. This was not at the whim of the Jewish leaders. This was at the choice of God. He allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. He chose it. And God unleashed the fury that was meant for you and I on Jesus. Amen? Jesus came to to pay for, to save from the penalty of our sin. So I think Matthew 121 raises this question in this room. And this is what the Christmas story raises for us. Has Jesus paid for the penalty of your sin? That occurs when we turn in repentance from our sin and in faith, we hold our life up to Jesus and say, it's yours. The penalty has been paid. I think it forces this question, has that happened? Has that happened? Is the penalty of your sin paid for? Sin deserves death. Jesus will take it. Has it been paid for? Okay, that's not where it stops though. Our sin is deserving of death, but Jesus came to save from the penalty of sin. But how about this statement? Not only from the penalty, but Jesus came to save from the dominion of sin. Here's how 1 John 3 describes it. It's going to describe us as being in the dominion of darkness. And when we are saved, we are transferred to the dominion of light. We go from being a child of Satan, to this is how 1 John describes it, to a child of God. Okay, so here's what he's saying. That when we go from child of Satan to child of God... Everything has been broken. The curse has been broken. What, all that has been fractured is now restored. This is how 1 John 3, 8 describes it. We read this earlier. Last phrase in the, in the passage says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You know what Christmas is about? Destroying the works of the devil in you and I. Not only to save from the penalty, but from the bondage of sin, from the dominion of sin. Christmas is about Jesus coming to crush the works of Satan in us. In us, in you, in me. And okay, now look at me here and we're going to close up. I think it's real easy for us to make a mockery of the Christmas season by us singing our songs, but cuddling with our sin. Amen? When Jesus has said, I didn't come for you to cuddle with it, I came to crush it. And so let me ask you the question. Is there sin that you have grown to be friends with? That you have befriended? That you have taken into your home and you are living with? Jesus came to crush it. That is a beautiful gift of Christmas. Not only the penalty paid, but sin crushed on your behalf. Why don't you pray with me? Let me talk to believers in this room for just a second. And I want to encourage you today. We are all in need of change. There's not a person in here that's not in need this morning 
of change. And so whatever that looks like for you, I just want to encourage you that change is possible because Jesus has come. Change is possible because Jesus came. Because he has crushed the head of Change is possible because Jesus is here. And so whatever that looks like, maybe, maybe your change is pride this morning. Maybe your change is a critical spirit, a nagging spirit. Maybe your change is just irritability or harshness, ingratitude. Maybe your change is laziness and apathy, gluttony, pornography, insecurity, bitterness, anger. Here is the hope this morning. Jesus has come to crush those things. So can I ask you a question? Is that happening in your life? Is Jesus, is he crushing those elements, those things, that sin? Is he crushing those things? Our God came to save, to crush, to destroy. Is he doing that in you? I think there's a there's a plea and a promise in, in Matthew or in, uh, in, in Matthew 21. The plea is to fight against. Don't become friends with. Go to war against sin. And the promise is Jesus has come to destroy it for you. As you fight it, Jesus will crush it. And listen, this is not a plea for perfection here. This is a plea to wage war, allowing Jesus to crush sin in our life. Is he doing that in you? Okay, the, the other element in here. If you came in today and you have been all around the gospel, just not in the gospel, the good news of Christmas is Jesus has come to pay for the sin, your sin that deserves death, your sin that deserves hell. He was slayed on a cross, taking the fury, the anger, the wrath of God meant for you. He absorbed on your behalf. Sin deserves death, but Jesus came to to save, to save from the penalty of that sin. And I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, on that contact card, there is a space down at the bottom to, to check a box that says, I would love to know how to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. And we would love to continue that conversation with you. So if that's you, I just want to encourage you to fill out that. Make sure you put that in the offering plate at the end. So we'll have a record of it. Here's how we end today. We are going to sing the song I think this is Christmas in a nutshell. That our God saves. It's celebratory. It is our God is good. He is the fulfillment of the promise. The tension has been relieved. How will God solve the problem? He will solve it himself by entering the story. Being brutally slaughtered on a cross to save his people from their sins. Our God saves. God, we lift that up this morning. We declare it this morning. God, we praise you for it this morning. God, I pray that we would live in it this week. That our God saves the penalty, the dominion. Our God saves. God, we thank you for Christmas that you came. In Jesus' name, amen.